Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you willing? Hey gents. Welcome to another episode of Apex Masculinity, a high-performance men's coaching outfit designed to help you show up strong in every area of life. Raising the bar in fatherhood, marriage, finance, business, health, and all things manly. Gentlemen, let's begin. All right, guys, my guest with me today is Marcus Bales. He's a professional speaker, author, speech coach, and a lifelong sufferer of social anxiety. Marcus, happy to have you on, man. How are you doing this morning? Uh, hey, Nick, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing really well. Fantastic. So in keeping with the, the theme of the show, why don't you just kind of take us back to your past and some things that you went through and dealt with in your younger years and we'll get on a trajectory of what that's led into your life today and what you're doing today. Of course. So uh, I've suffered from social anxiety my entire life. Uh, and when I was a kid, it was so severe that it not only impacted my social life, I had very few friends, it was very difficult to interact with people. It actually affected my schooling as well. So when I was in sixth grade, I was actually put into special reading classes. I was separated from my classmates. I had to go to this small room away from everybody else and read this tiny little book that was maybe a second grade reading level over and over again. And it was so frustrating to me and kind of humiliating because I knew that I could read. I just couldn't read out loud because I was so afraid to, to even speak in front of anybody, including my teachers, my family. So it, it really started to show me that as I grew older, this feeling of anxiety was really going to impact my life in negative ways. And it wasn't until the end of sixth grade that my mother noticed that I was reading a book to my brother before going to bed. And she went, well, if he can read a book to his brother, he obviously can read. So what's going on here? So she went to my teachers and said, hey, you, I think you should give him a silent reading test. And they did. And I passed right within the normal range for my grade. And it was really that moment that made me realize if I didn't start to overcome that anxiety, I was going to get left behind. So it, it really started on my journey to overcoming social anxiety, which has been a lifelong pursuit uh, ever since. And I made many strides uh, throughout high school into college and really kind of took a, a, a winding road. You know, there were ups and downs and days where I thought, there's no way I'm, I'm going to get better at this. Um, but slowly, I, I got more comfortable. I did a lot of research. I studied a lot of the greatest speakers who's, who have ever lived and, and delved into the science behind why we feel that anxiety in the first place. And through that research and years and years of practice, um, I eventually became a professional speaker. And now I speak in front of crowds of, you know, anywhere from 10 to, you know, a thousand people on any given week. Uh, and I, I find fulfillment out of it. So what was once my greatest fear is, is now one of my greatest assets and is how I make a living and, and find true passion, uh, in my life. Uh, so I, I wanted to share my experiences with social anxiety with the world 
and eventually led up to me writing my new book, uh, Don't Shut Up, which is my collection of stories on overcoming social anxiety, living with it through my adolescence and even as an adult, and how other people can use the same techniques and science that I did to overcome their anxiety. That's awesome, brother. Um, so what I'm getting from this is you realized the need to self-educate because you said you were making strides. So in my mind, I'm seeing you maybe reading books, watching videos, stretching yourself out of your comfort zone, maybe taking like a public speaking class in school or something like that, just to force yourself out of your comfort zone to get better at this thing of public speaking. Absolutely. You know, so many people understand the concept of practice and training in other areas. If you want to grow your muscles, if you want to become faster, if you want to become stronger, you'd go to the gym every single day. That's a very widely accepted form. But we rarely think about that in terms of becoming a better speaker. Our brain is a muscle. And the more we train it, the more we exercise it, the stronger it becomes. So by pushing yourself, by kind of becoming a little bit uncomfortable in those situations, you will expand your idea of what is possible uh, when you are speaking to others. And you'll get better at it. Every time you go and, and have a new conversation, even if it's with one other person, you're gaining practice, which is valuable. You wouldn't go and you know shoot free throws with uh, the, the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. You would go and you'd practice for years and years and years, and then you'd go and you'd be able to perform on the big stage. The same thing goes for speaking. So many people think you're either born with it or you're not, and that's not the case at all. Okay. Having that ability to practice is really important. So- was one-on-one -on -one intera social interactions just as difficult for you as more public ones or ones where a spotlight was on, like having to read in, in a school setting in front of somebody? Absolutely. Uh, you know, being able to approach my fellow classmates was unbelievably daunting. And don't even get me started on approaching people that I wanted to date. You know, that added even more levels of stress. Uh, because the stakes seemed so much higher. So it's important to understand that there are different levels to your social anxiety, and you want to conquer them one at a time, which is why I break down my methodology into three sections, really. There's personal interactions, which is kind of that one-on-one -on -one or maybe a couple people in the room together. And then there's business interactions, which changes the stakes because now it's not interpersonal relationships, it's business relationships, which as we all know, are quite different. And then finally, there is public interactions, which is where you are the center of attention of a large group. And each one has its own challenges. And when you tackle them individually, you become stronger in the process and it becomes easier when you move to the next. So there, there is a lot of value in, in practicing those small interactions as well. Sure. So going back to see for me and like the people that I speak to, like I call my audience, a lot of the stuff that we deal with in our lives today stem from some kind of either like traumatic experience from our past uh, or whether acute, um, what's the other word for 
chronic, either acute or a chronic experience that they had that causes people to have these struggles today. Do you think there was something that happened in your past that initiated the social anxiety disorder to begin with? I think there was a combination of events. And unfortunately, they compound on each other, much like, you know, many other traumas. Uh, Because when you have one bad interaction, especially as a child, it really resonates with you. It's like when you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't want to do that again. So when you get ridiculed in a social situation, you don't want to put yourself in that situation again. And then that makes you more anxious and thus puts you in this cycle of avoiding social interactions, which makes you more awkward, which makes you more prone to having awkward social interactions. Um, I I was asked this question on on another uh, interview And I didn't really have a good answer, but I thought about it a lot since then. And I do remember a very early memory. It was probably second grade. So so going way back, I was having an interaction with a bunch of kids at a a table during lunch, which was very out of character from the rest of my childhood. But I think this was early enough that it was before I really had those seated feelings of anxiety. And I remember I I was telling a story. I have no idea what the story was about. I was telling some story and a teacher came up behind me, listened to the story and obviously didn't like it and put a hand on my shoulder because I didn't know they were there, Mm -hmm. scared the crap out of me. And I got reprimanded in front of all of my classmates. Okay. Then afterwards, I got made fun of for being reprimanded in front of my classmates. And that resonated with me like, oh, speaking to to people could potentially get me ridiculed. I'm going to start to step back. And then it's this vicious cycle of of going backwards. Uh, And then eventually, you know, by sixth grade, I'm I'm incapable of talking to, to people. Outside of having an experience in our formative years of our youth and adolescence that would develop neural pathways that would cement that idea that we shouldn't do this or we're not good at this or there's danger involved in this, which created that cyclical pattern you were talking about, do you think some people are born more prone to be socially outgoing as opposed to socially reclusive? I think there's potentially you know, different personality types that, you know, you can, you can be born into, but I don't think that they determine your end fate. I think it gives you a starting point Mm -hmm. because I've met many people who fall into these categories very early on. I've worked with, with children very often uh, throughout my life. And you can kind of see as they develop different personalities. And maybe it's an evolutionary thing where certain personalities were needed in, in, you know, groups or tribes. But I find that embracing those kind of predetermined personality traits could almost be a detriment to you. Uh, For example, extroverts and introverts, those labels are thrown around all the time. And really, introversion gets labeled negative all the time. But rarely do we think about extroversion also being a negative trait that you internalize. If you are labeled an extrovert, you ha- you feel like you're always on. You always have to be 
loud and and fun and entertaining, which is exhausting. You don't get to recharge that battery because you are embracing your own stereotype. And the same goes for introverts. If you identify as an introvert, you may shy away from situations that could really benefit you because of that. So I think labeling yourself or embracing your own, you know, internal personality traits can be a hindrance if you allow them to kind of manifest negative attributes or keep you from excelling in situations that you know you can, but you recoil from because of that, you know, identifier. Yeah, I've heard that, like you said, it's thrown about introvert, extrovert is thrown about, just like the definition of toxic masculinity, like it just depends on who you ask what that means and what they've experienced, right? So what I've learned from hearing, like trying to dissect and go through all of the different definitions of being an introvert or an extrovert, because people will tell me like, I'll have a conversation and they'll be like, Oh, you know, I'm an introvert. And I'm like, nah, dude, you, like you've been talking for the last 20 minutes, bro. <laughs> you can't be an introvert. You're no, exactly I, right. But they are uh, exactly right. They, they, I guess the best definition that I think I'm landing on these days is that it takes an introvert longer to recharge after they expend. Like they had like an extrovert can get exhausted with it, you know, but it, 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 they, it's a natural flow for them so they can bounce back quicker. But an introvert can be very talkative and have great conversations and interact socially. But the downtime afterward of having to recharge, and I don't know if that's true or not or whatever, but I guess that's where I'm landing on these days. Yeah. And I would agree with that definition. Uh, I myself would probably be labeled an introvert. Mm -hmm. Though I speak in front of people all the time, my partner will attest when I fly home after a long week of, of presentations, I don't say a word. All I want to do is sit in silence and vegetate, you know, go and be alone and not have to talk because I need to recharge because I think I do lean towards that introverted spectrum. But it's the idea that you don't let those labels define how you interact with the world everyone recharges on their own time, but it's having that freedom to choose, hey, I am going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to be on stage today. So I'm going, I'm going to turn it on instead of saying, well, I'm an introvert. So I'm going to, I'm going to avoid that. Or, hey, maybe I need to shut up and listen for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And an extrovert may say, well, no, I need to keep talking. No, sometimes you need to kind of calm down, give yourself a break and and just relax. So having that flexibility, I think is the important piece. But I would agree that, you know, there are different levels of recharging that need to happen. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Marcus, um, you, you have this social anxiety thing that's developing in your early years. And at some point, maybe I'm just going to guess, I might be wrong, but I'll guess like teenage years come around and you're realizing this is an issue and it's starting to bother you. So, which is, I praise you and commend you for this, not just settling into this idea that this is who I am, and I just need to figure out how to adjust my life around this thing, but saying, no, I'm going to push myself and stretch myself by speaking in front of people, like going out of my way to engage in or even start conversations with people. I'm going to take some public speaking classes. I'm going to educate myself on this whole 
anxiety, public speaking, all of this introvert, extrovert stuff. Maybe you did it through college. I don't know if you went through college. I'm going to assume you went through college, but maybe you like kept studying all of this stuff. Why so much? Why not get to a point where you've read a few books, you've had some social interactions, you're feeling quite comfortable with your ability to operate in this as needed. Why the big push to make it basically your theme of life that everything you do revolves around today? You know, to to quote a great cellist, Pablo Casales, I think I'm making progress. <laughs> he he said that in an, in an interview when he was 81 years old, because he continued to practice every day, even though he was considered one of the best cellists in the world. And I really kind of take that mentality to heart. I think every day I am making progress and it gives me a fulfillment that you don't get in many places. And so many people hunt for that feeling. Mm -hmm. And when you can find it, you yeah. want to just keep going yeah. because it's, to me, one of the greatest feelings you can have in your life is, is that fulfillment. And it's also something that I've realized my greatest weakness became my greatest strength. I've now won several awards as a public speaker. And I think a lot of my skill set stems from social anxiety. It's that fear mm -hmm. of being, you know, well received on stage that makes me perform even better. And it makes me write better speeches. Mm -hmm. So I just keep embracing that and keep wanting to move forward to get better. Uh, so I, I really think it's it's a combination of those feelings of fulfillment and kind of being able to be the best at something or continue to try to be the best. I like that, bro. So for the fulfillment part of this, I uh, there's you know so many different flavors of people in the world today and i've learned over the years to just accept people like where they are where they're at everything they got going on because i want that acceptance for myself right so that's like a precursor to tell you that i'm not going to take this podcast in a religious direction i just wanted to share with you that that i'm a religious man and years ago after getting out of prison i was attending a church and I was asked to stand up and share my testimony about an eight-year meth addiction with needles, um, prison twice, homeless. Like I was that guy with a sign with drool in his beard, with track marks up and down his arms, like asking for money so I could get another shot of dope kind of a thing. And to kind of share the transformation that had taken place in my life up to that point. And I was nervous, man. Like, but something in me was like saying like, this is your destiny. This is your calling. You know what I mean? So I, you're smiling yeah. as I say that. So you, you understand what I'm talking about, right? So I got up there and I was, I didn't go to seminary. I was not educated. I didn't understand expositional preach. I didn't understand any of this stuff, right? I just got up there and shared my story where I was to where I'm at. And people came up to me afterwards and I know this is a dangerous place where we're looking for validation through other people's opinion and praise. We need to get to a place where we self-validate. Like we're okay with who we are, as we are, comfortable in our own skin, no problem. But the amount of validation that I got and 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 praise and uh, just, just high fives and kudos, people were telling me things like, man, I was tearing up while you were talking, man. Like you got a gift here, bro. Like, and I was like, okay. 
the fulfillment that I got from that, it was almost like finally for the first time in my life, rather than destroying things, I'm actually bringing something living and alive and effectual and influential in a positive way. And, and I totally get the fulfillment part of that, bro. I, I love that story. And I have a prediction on what happened there. Before people came up and praised you, how did you feel immediately after you gave that, before anyone approached you? Okay, so I always tell people, because we just did a public speaking event, a personal growth and development event in Phoenix, and I was talking to a couple of the other speakers there, and I was telling them, it feels like having a baby, as best as I can guess, like up to that moment, you're excited, you want to deliver powerful content, but at the same time, get this thing out of me. Like it's nine months, get it out of me. You know what I mean? (laughs) So there was that feeling of just like, like the baby's out, like I'm better now. But it was also, I don't know. I don't think there was too much like, oh, I hope I did a good job. But if you ask my wife now, I'll still go to her and be like, babe, was that okay? So I think there is some concern that you brought goods, quality goods to the table. So it was probably a little bit of concern for whether or not I was able to do well. And then just a relief after it was over that it wasn't there anymore, you know? That's exactly what I thought. So many people have this voice inside them and we all have value to bring to the world. And it's okay to have that validation from other people. As, like you said, as long as you don't let it define how you see yourself. Mm. And so many people I've talked to after they give that, big speech that they've been waiting their whole life to give, this weight is almost lifted. Mm -hmm. And right there, that's all the validation you need. Everything else that comes after that from other people is just a bonus. It's totally fine to feel good when other people validate you as well. But that relief that you feel, that is the gratification that everybody I think is really looking for, is to feel a little bit lighter. Yeah. So as you are leading up to your public speaking career, uh, including the book and all the events that you've been at and able to share your story, was there ever a moment and is there still times where you deal with imposter syndrome? Oh, 100%. Talk to me. What's that look like? And why do you think we still struggle with that? And will that ever go away? uh, I think maybe someday. But I don't know. I, I think as humble humans, obviously, you know, if, if people who don't have that feeling, maybe there's a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, sociopathic tendencies. But uh, when you feel like you are, are in that imposter syndrome, I think it's a lack of reassurance for yourself when you feel like you don't deserve to be there. Right. So I think it's a natural feeling for anyone to have because, you know, we all want to feel like we deserve the things that we get Mm -hmm. when really that's not up to us. You know, the world will, will rotate in the way that it's going to, and you can have influence and you can have the, the power to change things, But when you get that success, when you have that feeling of imposter syndrome, it's really just that underlying, you know, 
feeling of inadequacy, which yeah. I still deal with. And I think that's where it comes from is we feel like we don't deserve it. And it's something that I still work on um, to, to be better about saying, no, you did, you, you got here, you did deserve this uh, because we like to think that, oh, well, it was just luck or it was just happenstance when really I, I truly believe that what comes to us is things that, that we deserve and we work for. So I, I do struggle with that, but trying to get better. <laughs> yeah, no, I deal with it too, for sure, man. There's thoughts that get in my head, like, come on, you want to, you're going to be the next Tony Robbins? Like, who are you? You know, like there's a voice back there. Like, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know what you struggle with. And uh, I had a, I had a, a minister friend tell me years ago, he said, you know, to, cause those guys go anywhere from one to three times a week, standing in front of a crowd of anywhere between, as you said, 10, or in some cases, thousands of people. Right. Yeah. And he said to me, he cause I was talking to him about this and he said, Nick, you have to be slightly egocentric. And I, I don't, you, you may have a different opinion on this. And I was like, I was like, okay, in what way? And he's like, well, to get up here week after week, you have to have the mindset of, I have something powerful for these people that is going to positively affect their life so much to the point that these people have now left their homes, got themselves dressed, got their children dressed, drove down here to listen to this speech. And he said it, it was unsettling because, so. I mean, if you think about that, there's like 40, 40 families, as an example, that are racing out the door in a hurry to get to hear you because they're hoping you'll deliver something. So he said it's, it's intimidating, uh, but you have to have a little bit of an ego with it and all that stuff. And there's so much psychology to this. Um, I find it fascinating. Fear fuel, you had mentioned. I don't know what kind of music you listen to, um, but sometimes I play that song by Eminem, Lose Yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like talking about getting in out of fear or using fear as fuel, but getting into what I call flow state. What does that look like for you? And what can you share about that? Yeah. So I'm a big proponent of flow state. I, I love it. I seek it out uh, in many aspects of my life, speaking being one of them. And for me, flow state is the direct connection from your, your unconscious brain to whatever action you are doing. So when I'm speaking and I'm in a flow state, I don't even have, I don't even think about what I'm saying. It's like instantaneous from my brain to my mouth. There's no thought needed. It seems easy, that flow. Or another example, I like to woodwork. And when I hit that rhythm, it's almost like the, the boards are cutting themselves. They're assembling themselves. I can see 13 steps ahead. I don't even have to think about it anymore. It all just flows out naturally. And I think that's kind of the flow state that, that people are talking about. And one thing that I find allows you to enter flow state better is having that expertise behind it. The less conscious thought you have to make. So like when I first started out woodworking, it's a good example. 
you have to worry about every cut, every measurement. You really have to think deeply about certain actions. But the more proficient you become at that action, the less you have to think about it. And you have that muscle memory. Mm -hmm. And it just begins to flow out of you. And it's this very surreal experience, which it, it sounds like you've entered flow state before as well. Mm. It's a very surreal experience of almost instantaneous creation yeah. of whatever you're doing. One thing I've noticed for flow state is if I don't get there, then there is like two people trying to coexist in my head at the same time for the delivery of this speech. And if I just yield to the flow state guy, the benefit the greatest benefit, well, I'm sure there's multiple benefits, like better effect on the crowd as far as what's being delivered. But one of them, when I go into flow state, I instantly start having fun instead of being um, fearful. I don't want to say fearful, just anxious. Yeah. Anxiety goes away. Immediate fun shows up to the point where I'll walk away from the notes and just start leaning on the tables and like I'm talking to people and that makes it such a better experience that I think connects better with people when I'm having fun giving the speech. One thing I've noticed that may be a negative with getting into flow state is whatever notes I've got written down, <laughs> they're out the window, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, oh, I wanted yeah. to talk about this. I wanted to talk about that. And I forgot. And now like, ah, the speech is over. And this was a really important sub point that I wanted to go over. So I've got to like learn how to develop and when we did this event in Phoenix two weeks ago, um, one of the guys had the most experience, I would say, in this type of event than the other two of us. So, so we asked him to critique and uh, he was giving me points, you know, like don't stand behind that wooden box because they had kind of a, I, I know in a, in a religious setting, they would be called a pulpit. I don't know what you would call it in a, just a regular conference room just a table that you can put your notes on and look at so to speak he said don't hide behind that thing bro you got to come around that thing and actually interact with the crowd like you got to own that room kind of a thing and uh, I was like yeah but I didn't want to get away from my notes so when I watched him he had the just the notes on his phone but he'd set his phone down on that pulpit and he would walk around own the room and then every once in a while he'd walk back over there and just look real quick and see where he was at and it didn't seem disingenuine. Like, I think people understand you have to have notes to stay on point with this. Um, so that's just something I'm going to have to work on for myself. Yeah, a couple of tips uh, that I can give surrounding notes and the preparation of a speech is you want to use the cognitive association idea. So usually when people write a speech, they write out every single word or they write out uh, you know, many small bullet points of every topic they want to cover, which that begins to take your attention away. That's why, you know, you may leave your notes and you walk away. And now when you come back, you can't see where you're at because there's so much information there. Yes. So you want to have just big, bold kind of mile markers. Right. So if you're thinking about it, like driving, you know, when you're driving along, instead of thinking about every single foot in front of you, you can simply look for the exit signs every couple of miles. And those are the main points in your speech that you want to hit. So for me, you know, an example might be, I'm helping someone with a wedding speech. You know, they're giving a speech as the best man. 
at a wedding, instead of listing out every single item, they could put, you know, first grade story. That then cognitively associates to a larger story mm -hmm. that you can then look at a piece of paper, say, oh, first grade story, back away, enter flow state, tell the story, and you have freedom to kind of bob and weave without that structure. Right. Then when you're done with the story and you don't know what's next, you peek at the paper and it says meeting Angela or meeting the bride. Boom. Cognitive association. Now you're telling the story about how you met his wife or his partner, whoever. And then you go through that. You've got the freedom. So it's like bumpers at a bowling alley. Mm -hmm. You still get to shoot the ball and it can go in whatever direction, but it keeps you on track as you go through that flow state. I like it. Yeah, it's good. So I've got a question for you. So when you're giving a speech, do you use like the body language and the facial features of the crowd as kind of guiding posts to let you know if you're still holding that crowd so that you can maybe shift or add more energy or spend some more time or get off a topic that may be boring people or something like that? 100%. And it's a little bit different than a personal interaction where you can actually watch the eyes and the facial expressions of an audience. When you're interpreting the feelings of an audience based on body language, you're looking for kind of larger gestures. So as people begin to cross their arms, they slump back in their seats, their head kind of goes forward, or you start to miss eye contact. I'm a very big proponent of making eye contact, even if there are tens of thousands of people in front of you, because that's going to start to allow you to draw in that audience. If you make eye contact with one person in the fifth row back, all of a sudden, the 10 people around that person also start to get drawn in. So as you sweep the audience, you can do that. So when you start to lose eye contact, you're, you're not able to make eye contact with as many people. You're seeing those gestures of, of kind of negative or neutral feedback. You can start to pivot and regain their attention. And, and a really easy way to do that is using our kind of primitive motion sensors. We, we've all experienced it. When something moves around us, we instantly have to look at it. When it when a tiger was moving through the brush, it was really useful to notice that motion and hone in on it. So it's really important to move around on stage, or even if you're just in a small group, have motion and exaggerate your gestures for people who are farther away so that it begins to trigger those motion sensors and keeps their focus and their attention. Uh, and then you'll be able to see as their, their feeling shift, if you need to pivot the topic, because not every topic is going to hit the same with every audience. Yeah. I was giving a speech here in Williston, North Dakota, where I live. And it was, it wasn't solely for the purpose of prepping myself for the, for this, for the Phoenix event, but I wanted to go over my material and I wanted to take myself from the first event that I had done, it was free. It was at the library. I had to spend money and they told me, yep, it's going to cost you a hundred bucks to rent this room. 
and you can't sell anything. And I'm like, well, all right, that's cool. I don't have anything to sell at this point, but I couldn't even charge for tickets. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not about money right now. It's about me delivering content and growing and refreshing in this trade. And it was a really good meeting. There was like 10 people that came out and this is not a personal growth and development town. This is an oil field town where people like to drink and fight. So that's kind of what I'm dealing with here. But <laughs> yeah. the second event, and I had and I had learned through this process because I have this notebook where I am writing down everything that I'm learning. And so I learned that we need to find a different event venue space that's going to be more affordable, but that will allow me to charge tickets, for example, on Eventbrite is where I hosted it. And when people came, it was a good mix of people with different backgrounds. So when I was talking about trauma and drug addiction and prison and trying to build your self-confidence levels up to begin to believe that you can be a successful person, all the people that had mired pasts, it was like they were holding their breath, like on pins and needles. But some of the more affluent people that didn't have that kind of past that were already successful, like guys that there was a guy there that I know that, I mean, he's done super well for himself in his career, in cryptocurrency, in his retirement plan, real estate, like he's one of those guys. And I kept looking at him and he was like doing his eyes back and forth like this. And somebody told me years ago that if you get bored during a speech, just move your eyes around a whole bunch. And it'll, it'll bring you back. It'll like kind of bring you out of the boredom phase. So I'm like, okay, I'm losing that guy. But this lady over here, I have her completely. You know what I mean? So it's a fine-tuned, find art thing to be able to hold an entire crowd and try not to lose certain people. Um, any tactics or ideas on that? Well, number one is just to realize and accept that you can't please everybody all the time. Right. And, and being able to accept that is just part of the gig uh, and it's part of life. So once you kind of accept that, you know, sometimes there's going to be people that maybe they're forced to be there. Maybe they, you know, they, they've got their mind in other places. Uh, you can start to alleviate that anxiety of, oh, I'm not, I'm not truly engaging that, that person, um, which is important. You need to be kind to yourself and understand that those things are going to happen. You can also try to have different points in your speech or ask different questions if you have that ability to do so that are going to interact with those people. So throw some ideas out. This is a very popular uh, you know, tactic from uh, wannabe psychics, you know, people who pretend to be a psychic called a cold reading where you just throw out enough subjects that eventually one of them sticks. Right. So the same thing kind of happens in, in speeches that are more free-flowing. Obviously, political speeches, things like that, uh, they have a set agenda. They have set things that need to happen. But when you have that freedom, you can kind of throw out a whole bunch of different topics. You can ask questions to the audience and gauge. Use it as a barometer to see where they're at and then pivot to those different items, which is a really useful tool uh, when interacting with, uh, you know, even larger crowds, uh, because you can kind of tell the, the sentiment of an audience, uh, even if you can't see individual facial expressions. Right. So we were doing this, we were doing this speech, this event, 
and I'm going to get your opinion on this because I know that you have been a uh, avid student of this entire package, not just delivering speeches, but having done events yourself. We were, I was giving a speech and it was like, I had an outline, Roman numerals, all that stuff. I knew I wanted to talk about a traumatic past, how it leads into not having any self-confidence, self-esteem, how the neural pathways are developed from that. And then one day you have a wake up call and realize you want to be successful and build an amazing life for yourself, but you're functioning from decades of neuroplasticity that tells you you can't and you don't deserve it, right? So I was trying to deliver, and I think I did well enough tactics, strategies that people can begin to implement in their life today to begin to boost their self-confidence, to rewire the brain and create new neural pathways that they'll then begin to function from. And, and it was, I had my Roman numerals and my sub points. I didn't overwhelm myself like you were talking about early, where you write out a whole story basically, and then you get lost in it. But when the when the third guy got up, this guy's, this guy's a cannonball, man. Uh, Simon Smart is his name. He was actually being interactive with the crowd, like asking them questions, telling them to write certain things down, and then asking people what they wrote down. Do you have just a speech? Or when you do this, do you involve the crowd in what you're doing? I absolutely involve the crowd. What is that like? uh, so for me, I have specific questions that I like to ask. And some are, you know, if it's a larger crowd and I can't interact one-on-one, -on -one, uh, they're more general participatory questions. You know, raise your hand if. Okay. Or, you know, have you ever experienced this? So those begin to interact with the audience on a deeper level than just kind of telling them things. They are now a a person that is part of the story mm -hmm. they can relate to it better so having those participatory actions during a speech will get them more engaged and will get them more uh invested in you because now they have a personal connection to it uh so i i always uh in pretty much every speech that i give have some sort of participatory action that can be taken during that speech is that something uh, you picked up on your own or is that something you learned along the journey of speech delivery on how to interact with a crowd to extract the best results and have the best impact? So I had a really great mentor um, while I was uh, out of high school who kind of taught me the ins and outs of MC work. So master of ceremonies, which is how I got my start in professional speaking. And as an MC, it is even more important to get people engaged because if they're not having fun, mm -hmm. you know, if you're giving a normal speech, it's okay if your audience isn't having fun, you know, quote unquote. But as an MC, if your audience isn't having fun, you're you're not doing your job right. So right. it's even more important to have them participate in the event itself. So there were, I, I got to watch him and learn alongside of him. And one of the things that he would do is really kind of interact with the crowd, you know, have those uh, questions, have, he would even bring people up on stage, ask them questions, have them, you know, dance or do something crazy. And mm -hmm. that would just get everybody more involved. So getting to see that really resonated with me that you can have that same approach 
in any speech. Mm-hmm. It's not just for parties and MC work. It can be anywhere. I like it, man. It's good stuff. So what would you say? Uh, well, let me do let me do this first before it gets away from me. What about timing and length of timing for a speech? Because I noticed at the one that I gave here in North Dakota, by the end of an hour and a half, people were visibly, noticeably, like you can't leave a person in a chair for that long. When you do your speeches, or maybe you do them differently depending on the event, how do you gauge the proper timing to hold someone in the same position and for how long? It all depends on subject and environment. So if you were learning about the uh, event horizon of a black hole and it was part of your major, you are a lot more willing to sit and listen than you were if it's just a passing, you know, free event somewhere. Mm -hmm. It also is a subject that is unbelievably complex. So the length of time to explain it is longer. Mm -hmm. So my general rule of thumb is use the fewest words possible to get your point across effectively. Okay. And it's something that I have kind of built my signature style on, which is remove words instead of add, because you only have a finite amount of attention that each audience will give you. And if you try and stretch a 30-minute presentation to fit an hour, everyone's going to be bored and they're going to realize exactly what you're doing. So you have to make sure that number one, your subject warrants the amount of time. And number two, your environment is conducive to the amount of time that you need. Mm -hmm. And if those two things don't match, you need to rethink your approach. Yeah. So, you know, if you're giving a speech at a wedding, the attention span is very, very small. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's cake sitting right over there that people want to eat. There's booze at the bar. (laughs) So your attention span is much less. So if you think that you need 20 minutes to give your speech, you might need to rethink that. Right. So understand the environment and understand the topic and find that balance where you get the point across effectively in the fewest words possible. I like it. One of the things I learned in this is that price point will also determine the willingness of your audience to sit longer. For example, I hosted an event here in Williston. It was my second one on Eventbrite, uh, same personal growth and development type topics, but I'm trying to increase myself up this ladder of teaching myself, implementing what I've learned in the next event, learning more, implementing what I've learned in the next event. And I said, okay, I'm ready to actually charge for this event. So I said, again, it's not about the money. I just want to have an effect and then learn the revenue side of this. So I listed the event on Eventbrite and charged seven bucks for a ticket. Remember, it's just about, can I create a revenue positive model with this? And I got people that came. And as I was at the front door, shaking hands, meeting people, meet and greet, man, so glad you came. What do you do for a living? Like, you know, what intrigued you about this? And I got stuff like, um, uh, well, we were just looking on Facebook and saw it and it seemed kind of interesting. 
So we thought we'd come. And I'm like, okay. And then someone else would be like, yeah, like I've been to prison. I was on drugs. I have trauma, like all this stuff. And I need this, or I'm trying to get to the next level in my own personal growth. The people that were just there because it was a cheap ticket and sounded like something fun to do were not held nearly as passionately in their attention as the people that were there because they had an experience to associate with it. But when we did the event in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago, those tickets were $97. And everybody in that room that was willing to pay that price point was deeply invested in their own personal growth and development and wanted to be there. Like it wasn't, well, we couldn't get into the movie theater. So this was our next best option. They wanted to be there. And that crowd, every single person in that room, except for the one guy whose girlfriend invited him, everybody else was attentive and wanted to be there. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's a very old kind of marketing tactic as well um, that can be used to display value and actually weed out individuals that are just spectators and those that actually want to learn and change. Um, you know, it. I use the same thing when I price my book, when I when I price other items, uh, when I price my speeches, is to make sure that my value is represented accordingly so that the people we want to reach are actually the ones that are in those seats. You know, this might be, you know, every time I do one of these podcasts, bro, I get a nugget, sometimes multiple, like something that was for me dropped in my spirit, my lap, so to speak. And I am always functioning from this place of just because everything I dealt with the, I don't deserve to be in this space. Like nobody's going to accept me in this space thing. So when I priced my book, I priced it really low just because I'm like, ah, I just hope somebody buys it. But what you're telling me is it almost seems, sounds like you're saying price it at a place where it's going to speak specifically to people that really, really connect with what you're offering in that book. Is that Absolutely. what I'm hearing? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And there's, there's this perceived value uh, that comes with different price points. And there's a famous example that I like of a hoodie. It's this large oversized hoodie and they originally priced it at $50 for this, this large kind of lounging hoodie. And they sold a couple hundred and they're like, what's going on here? And they got a lot of complaints and they got a lot of returns. And then they upped the price to $250. So a significant price increase. And all of a sudden, their sales went up drastically. Their complaints went down. Their returns went down. And it's because now this was considered a more luxury item. Mm -hmm. And the people that bought it were now people who really wanted it. At 50 bucks, people who were like, oh, that looks kind of cool. I'll just buy it. They would get it. And then they'd, they'd change their mind. But at $250, the people who bought it really wanted it. So it begins to weed out the people who are just kind of passing by. Yeah. And it, it again, it drives that product, that message to the appropriate people who really need it. Uh, and then you have better interactions, better relationships, and better customers um, when you price your product 
at its appropriate value. Yeah. I also, you know, I've, I've had other things where I'm like, oh, well, no one's going to want this. So I'm going to price it at, you know, $2 and then nobody wants it. And then you up the price. And now people say, oh, well, it's got a higher price. So it's, it's a, it's got to be better, even though it's the same thing. Um, so being able to find that value price point that delivers your message appropriately is so important. Dude, I love that, bro. Like, you're, like you're giving me tools to experiment with for my own journey, and that's awesome, man. And I, I know, I know you probably do this for a living, and I don't want to extract anything more out of you than like what you're willing to share. But I want you to know that I'm deeply grateful to be able to have this conversation with you, not only for the public speaking stuff but just to show people the journey of like the shy kid, the introvert kid um, to what you're, and we're going to get into everything like your, like your book and the events and all that stuff. Um, and we're kind of already getting there, but like that story and that journey is amazing. So thank you obviously for that and your willingness to share this stuff with me. So what you just said there almost um, leads me to wonder, do you, do you never market an event based on town size or market interest for a town like that. You know, like if you went to LA and had any kind of event, it's a huge town. There's a large pool of people to pull from somewhere there. And it's a large personal growth and development town. But if you go to somewhere in Kansas, so to speak, and I'm, I'm uh, making assumptions because I've never been there or whatever, but as an example, what people would typically think do you never go, well, it's Kansas. We probably better, we probably better price this a little bit lower or something like that. Do you, is there no other, no other uh, tools being involved with how to decide a price point for an event? So for me, and this may be coming from kind of a moral standpoint, um, I, I love business. I, I've been doing it my entire life, but I operate kind of on a moral compass of, if a product is worth a certain amount, it should be worth that amount regardless of where it is. I love it. I don't, I don't like when a house in, in one area that has the exact same specifications mm -hmm. and doesn't have significant, like a, a house on the water, that has a better benefit. Right. But a house in rural California versus a house in, in rural Wisconsin you know, if those are two drastically different price points, I don't see why that is. Sure. So for me, it's it's about pricing it regardless of where you are at, at the at the price that you think it's worth, mm -hmm. and then changing the venue to facilitate. So in LA, maybe people are going to see a $99 price tag and say, wow, that's so cheap. Well, now you get a bigger venue and you'll attract more people. In Kansas, you may have less people who are like, well, $99, that's a little steep. Now you can have a smaller venue, but you can create the same revenue and get the same people that you would in either case. Because, you know, if, if someone from LA saw that you were speaking in Kansas for, you know, $25, they mm -hmm. might say, well, how come it's only $25 there? At least that's my mentality. I know many other business people disagree with me, but my moral compass says, if something is worth this price, then it should be worth this price to everyone. And I don't want to hinder someone from, from that. I love that, bro. That's awesome, man. So let's talk about um, the actual dynamics of a speech. 
I have found myself that when I am very vulnerable and very transparent and I get into the nitty gritty, like the mud with where I've been and create um, a story of vulnerability where I'm laying myself bare before an audience, instant connection. Like I have these people as opposed to trying to put on a facade of um, I'm this amazing person and look what I've built. And, you know, therefore, because I have this success proof of where I'm at in life today, you should X, Y, Z, you know, buy this product or listen to what I have to say or whatever. But when I talk about living under that bridge, bro, and when I talk about the track marks on my arm, when I talk about some of the abuse stuff that I went through with my dad, my stepfather, whatever, man, it really helps. Like I'm holding those people in my hands and I know it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So you have unknowingly stumbled upon the Pratt fall effect. It's a Pratt. very Pratt fall effect. Okay. So it's a, it's a well-known psychological phenomenon that says when someone sees a, per, a perceived mistake from another person, it makes them more likable. And the reason is it makes them more human. Mm. We want to feel like other people are just as sad, just as vulnerable, just as hurt as we are. So when we see that quote unquote mistake, so, you know, a basic example, when that person you find attractive slips and falls or drops something or, or has a little mistake, you don't go, oh, well, now I'm not interested. You are, you're more interested. You're like, wow, look at that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's that same thing when you open yourself up and you reveal those true human tendencies, those true human emotions, people like you more because they relate to you. Even if they didn't go through the same experience. I talk significantly about suicide because it's a topic that is very close to me. And it's something I've dealt with throughout my life. And even people who've never considered it, never been in that dark of a place, they understand. Yeah. And and they go, I really resonated with that. Even though I've never felt that way, I know what you mean. And now we are connected on a deeper level because they feel like they know something that's real, something yeah. that that they can hold on to and yeah. that makes them feel better about themselves. Yeah, I like that, bro, because I've been in rooms before where someone will talk about suicide or something else that I've never experienced in my life, but because that issue is quote unquote, a dark place for them because I have my own dark places. My dark place doesn't need to be theirs. I've now connected with them because they know what it's like to be in the dark. Yeah. Rock bottom is different for everybody, but knowing that other people have been there makes you feel better about being there yourself. Yeah. And you can now relate and you can, you can have that empathy towards each other. So when you're doing these events for yourself in particular, um, are you trying to reach people that want to grow in the area of public speaking? And let me tell you why I'm asking this. I also realized in my notebook of notes that I'm taking, obviously the fulfillment of giving a public speak, speech that has impact and gives people tools to level up and live a better life, that in itself is amazing. But if you don't have a back-end product, what I've learned is, again, not from a position of greed, 
But if you spend $1,300 to rent an event venue space at a high-end motel in Phoenix, for example, I'll be a little bit vulnerable here and transparent, and you fly yourself from North Dakota and back, from, from North Dakota to Phoenix and back, and then you live in a motel for four days and you eat out because you're not home, um, you're going to find yourself, if you continue to do that, like depleting your bank account, investing in a speech, but not um, repleting, I guess that's not a word, but not like bringing revenue back in to support your public speaking endeavor by not offering something on the backside. So for you, I'm going to assume it's the coaching thing. Like if you want help to grow in public speaking and overcoming anxiety, and I'm totally guessing here, I would like to work with you. Is that kind of your back end that you have? Yes. So the the coaching, uh, hopefully the book, now that it's out, will be a, another source. Uh, and I'll be completely transparent and honest with you. My speaking is actually hired gun work, which means trade shows, companies pay me and fly me out to okay. speak at their events. Okay. I would love, and the book is really my starting point to go on my own nationwide speaking tour where it's me on stage as myself, just talking to people who either want to know what I have to say and are willing to pay for a ticket. Because right now I talk to a lot of people who have paid for an event that has other things happening as well. And they see on the event list, oh, well, he's speaking. Let's go see him too. Right. So it's a little bit different, but I I, I understand where you're coming from. Okay. So my next questions, obviously, like I'm writing stuff down, like you can't like, boom, as fast as you're talking, I'm writing stuff down. So these trade shows or these companies, are they much concerned with you speaking at their company business to their employees about social anxiety and public speaking? Or are you talking about other topics related to what that company has hired you to be a hired gun for? Both. Okay. So my specialty is in social anxiety, teamwork, communication, team building, things like that. Uh, but it's also very lucrative to speak on any topic of their choice. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, bro. Awesome. Yeah. 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 You got one of, you know, while you build your brand and it's not like, I almost feel like bad saying that, but it's, it's like a reality. Otherwise you're going to find yourself like poor and broke and unable to do this any longer. So it's a fine balance. I get it. So what other stuff do you speak on? Uh, a lot of technology. So okay. I have a background in software okay. uh, and I speak a lot about technology, software, uh, security, things like that um, on top of social issues like social anxiety, communication, better teamwork, um, and, and even kind of generational differences. Uh, so really it kind of runs the gamut. Okay. So I have some material on work ethic that I think would be really good for like speaking at a company function. My biggest blocker on this is how do you get yourself out there to these people to let them know that you do this and then build an, I mean, are you cold calling companies like, like, Hey, this is what I do. 
And if you need it, let me know. Or like, how does one even transcend into that arena? Uh, a lot, a lot of groundwork, uh, but it's making connections. Okay. Uh, you know, you really just need to attend a lot of shows. You need to make connections okay. with powerful business people, and you need to build a reputation of being an expert in your field, whatever it is you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that will start, your reputation will begin to precede you. Yeah. And it's a small sphere. So you begin to be recommended by other people. And as your name appears on one trade show, someone who attends might be putting on another trade show and they say, hey, well, they were really good. Let's let's get them at this trade show as well. Mm-hmm. And soon enough, you've built kind of a, a portfolio of previous events. And right. the more business events, the more trade shows you've spoken at, the more credibility you get. So it, it's one of those things where you have to kind of build up that base because no one wants to just, no one likes to be the first one to take a gamble on a brand new speaker. They want to say, oh, well, they spoke at this show, so they must be good. So right. once you build up that base, it becomes a lot easier and you start to build that snowball momentum yeah. where it starts to be more organic. I see that process in what I'm building now because in 2019, I'm really transparent about that with my audience. It was a cataclysmic year of both two towers of great success and positivity and this dark, dark place that I went to for a a multiplicity of reasons. And they were both growing and they just collapsed on each other. But out of that started the Apex Masculinity Podcast, where I just wanted to help guys that were just like me come out of toxic living, be better parents, be better spouses, be manage their money better, manage their fitness better, all of that stuff, you know. And uh, then I started writing and it was more of a just release for me. And then I was having my wife read this stuff and she's like, dude, this is really fantastic, you know. And so it turned into a book. And then like I wanted to start public speaking and I realized the connections that I had made from doing the podcast and having guests come on actually afforded me a network of people to create a multiple speaker event, which is what we ended up doing. Like I contacted a couple guys that were on the show and I was like, Hey, you guys want to do something live? And they're like, yeah, that'd be fantastic. You know, one lived in Phoenix, one lived in Tucson. So I was like, all right, it makes sense. Let's just have it in Phoenix, you know? So I'm learning that networking is a very key element to this. So I'm actually going to attend my first event where I'm not hosting it, building it, or speaking at it next, uh, see, we're almost in August. So yeah, next month in August, my wife and I are going to go to Bismarck, North Dakota, and we're going to hear this lady speak on fear, on your fears. And I think through that process, you end up meeting people and just rubbing shoulders with the right people, you know, like for, for example, Candace has been very uh, instrumental in like just helping me connect with people. And, you know, she'll talk to me about affiliate marketing and, uh, you know, just different things that you can do. And for me, it's Chinese when she talks, like, I almost want to tell her, Hey, 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 slow down. Like, this is all new for me, you know, but she'll throw me nuggets and she doesn't, you know, overwhelm me too much and stuff, but meeting people has really helped this thing evolve into its own living entity, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's all about networking. And that's one of the kind of the fundamental points in the book is that your life, even if you don't want to become a professional speaker, 
will become profoundly better when you fill it with interesting, exciting people. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is by talking to them. Yeah. You can't just sit in silence and have people enter your life. You have to interact with them. So that's really kind of the underlying message of what I talk about is if you want to live the most happy and fulfilling life possible, mm-hmm. you have to talk to other people. Yeah. And to do so, many of us need to overcome that underlying anxiety and become better speakers. I've run into many people who have no problem talking someone's ear off, but they're not very good at it. Mm. So it also is maybe I could get a little bit better. Maybe I'm doing things consciously or subconsciously that make me less likable. And all of that starts to come together in a way that allows you to expand your relationships and and what I believe live a more happy and fulfilled life in the process. Yeah, it's fantastic, bro. I'm going to be very honest with you, Marcus. Like I have a ton of more questions, but I'm running up against that naughty little Zoom clock again. So um, before I turn you loose, let's talk about the book, um, like title, where it can be found, if people are interested in picking it up, and if people are interested in working with someone who's an anxiety coach or you know, a public speaking development coach, how can people connect with you? So first start with the book and then get into how people can connect with you. Absolutely. The new book is called Don't Shut Up. It's available on Amazon, Audible, Kindle, or anywhere else you get your audiobooks. Uh, if you need personal coaching or you want to reach out to collaborate on an event, a podcast, or a video, you can reach out on my website, thespeechadvisor.com. There are links there if you want to uh, reach out uh, to collaborate on any events, uh, you can do so there or to get uh, professional personal coaching as well. Awesome. What town do you live in, brother? I never asked you that. Uh, right now I'm in Austin, Texas, oh. uh, but I'm going to be moving back to Chicago, Illinois uh, in about a month and a half. Okay. So you'll be a little bit closer to me at that point. If you would like to do an event that would be more, I guess, I've always considered that North Central America or Midwest, but it's way more East than where we're from. So I don't even know what to call it. But if you would like to network on an event, um, I am all about that right now. I'm all about that and working with people. And I think that the topics and the speeches would be more aligned with what we want to talk about, but they would also be aligned together. You know, as far as you're in a room trying to talk about this thing, and then this guy gets up and talks about marketing, and then that guy gets up and talks about, you know, a computer program or whatever, it would be personal growth and development related topics and stuff. So if you want to network with that man, like, that'd be awesome, bro. Like, I'm all about that right now. Absolutely. Let, let's get something put together in Chicago. Awesome. Cool. Listeners, stay tuned. Right, right. <laughs> I love it. Hey, man, well, thanks for taking the time this morning, bro. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, man, it's uh, I'm excited for what you're doing and the help that you're offering people and keep up the good work, man. Yeah. But thanks so much, Nick. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yep. Yep. We'll do it again, man. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm. Yeah. Thanks.